I don't know about you all. Um, Truth and Dare was one of my favorite games as a kid. Uh, I know it's a silly game, uh, but one of the reasons I liked it, I think, is that Truth or Dare tapped into this deep longing I have, and I think we all have, to be known. Every single one of us carries secrets that we want to share. Every single one of us wants uh, to bear our souls and for us to be accepted. Every single one of us wants to be fully known uh, and fully loved. And even though I was a shy, introverted kid then and sort of still am, the desire for intimacy, it ran deep and it runs deep still. But if truth and dare was exciting, you know, being asked, who do you have a crush on or what was your most embarrassing moment? And it was exciting, right, to be asked those questions. The game also felt risky and scary and dangerous. What if I share too much? What if I reveal something and people don't like what they see? What if I say something stupid? What if they think I'm stupid? What if they reject me? Playing this game and doing this dance, truth or dare, share or don't share, reveal or conceal, it doesn't stop in middle school. You did it in high school. You do it even now in college. You desperately want intimacy. You desperately want to be known, but you are also afraid. Afraid of letting people know the real you. Afraid of letting them get too close because, let's be honest, our lives are messy. Like There's beauty in here as much as there's beauty in your own heart. But there's a lot of brokenness too. And what will people do when they encounter that? What will they do when they encounter that? This fear that I'm describing is called shame. It's called shame. Ted Talk Wizard and shame expert extraordinaire Brene Brown describes shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It is the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we have not accomplished, makes us unworthy of connection. Shame is that voice inside of your head telling you that you are never enough. Not good enough, not thin enough, not powerful enough, not successful enough, not smart enough, not cool enough, not enough. We all know the sound of this voice. We all know what this voice sounds like. The voice of shame rings loud in our lives, and that is why I want to introduce you to a different voice tonight, right? God's voice. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Granted, on the surface, that's a very strange question to ask. Who told you that you were naked? Who told me that I'm naked? You're like, what? (laughs) Um... What is this question all about? You know, when God poses this question, he poses it to two people who are 
struggling with shame. He poses it to us, people who are struggling with shame. And tonight I want to ask and answer a couple of questions. What is shame? How is it different from guilt? Two, how do we try to hide our shame? And three, can we be naked and not ashamed again? What is shame? How is it different from guilt? How do we hide it or try to hide it? And can we ever be naked and not ashamed again? First, what shame and how is it different from guilt? Well, in Genesis 3, in the passage that we read tonight, we find Adam and Eve in some bushes, don't we? Naked and full of shame. That's not how their story began. In fact, Genesis 2 ends with the statement, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. God and the author of Genesis don't want you to miss this point. Intimacy is a good thing. You were made for it. You were made to know others and to be known by others, to love and to be loved. The point of them being naked and not ashamed is not that clothes are bad or that Adam and Eve had good body image. That's not what they're trying to say. That may be true. At least the part about body image. My clothes are good. Um, But when the Bible says that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, what it's really saying is that Adam and Eve bared it all. They didn't just bear their bodies, they bared their souls. They were fully known. They were fully loved. They had nothing to hide. They had nothing to fear. They had no anxiety. They had zero shame. This is the way that things used to be. This is the way things ought to be. But as you know well, that's not what we experience today. If this is what it was like back then, it's not what we experience now, is it? Once, if, once upon a time, it felt good to bear souls, but now that prospect sounds a little terrifying. Why? You know, what happened? Well, Genesis 3 supplies an answer. Right? According to the Bible, God's good world was invaded. At some point in time and space, a creature called the devil came to this planet, and he got people who were made in the image of God to reject God. People made in the image of God to reject God. He says, did God actually say you can't eat of any fruit of the garden? No, Eve says, we can eat from all of the trees except for one, lest we die. And the devil responds in verses 4 and 5, you will not surely die. The reason God doesn't want you to eat the fruit is because God knows that when you eat it, Your eyes will be opened, and then you will be like God. Then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you're not good enough. You're not good enough right now. You're not like God. You've got to do something else. You've got to be someone else. You've got to take this fruit. Then, maybe, then maybe, you would be like God. And this, of course, is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Because Adam and Eve did not need to do anything to be like God, but to obey him and to love him and to love each other and to love this world that God has entrusted to theirs and our care. Adam and Eve were enough. Adam and Eve were enough because Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. You too, right, are made in the image of God. 
Look, you all, when God looks at you, He doesn't go, meh. When God looks at you, He says, wow. Wow. Because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in the image of God. You are a beauty to behold. But listen, listen. The voice of the devil fills Adam and Eve's ears and it poisons their hearts. You are not enough. You are not enough. Who told you that you were naked, God asked? Who suggested that you were not okay? That was not God's voice. That voice belonged to someone else. And Adam and Eve listened to it. You and I listened to it. They acted on it. We acted on it. And this only compounds shame. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, once upon a time, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. But now they are naked and they are full of shame. Intimacy, which was once a good thing, now feels dangerous and threatening. This is the world that Adam and Eve left behind. This is the world that you and I inherited. It is a broken world full of broken people wrestling with guilt and shame. And they are not the same thing. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. But shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. That is not the same thing. One can be helpful, the other is always harmful. Look, when you do something wrong and you have that sinking feeling like, gosh, I shouldn't have done that, that's guilt. Okay, since nobody in this room has lived a perfect life, has anybody lived a perfect life? No. Okay, since none of us in this room has lived a perfect life, since all of us here have actually hurt people and places and things, we have all done that. Guilt is a feeling that we should be familiar with. Gosh, I shouldn't have done that. You should know this feeling. Knowing, like, feeling this is actually a sign that your moral compass works. And it can be helpful to the degree that it helps motivate positive change. But shame, on the other hand, is never helpful. It is always harmful. It is always destructive because it corrodes the very part of us that believes we can change and do better. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes that we can change and do better. Not, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, I am. I am a mistake. Guilt has the power to push you towards reconciliation. Shame just makes you want to run and hide. And this brings us to point number two. Okay? How? How do we hide or mask our shame? When I was maybe eight or nine years old, um, I was ripping out weeds in the family garden. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I was actually ripping out poison ivy. It wasn't weeds. It was poison ivy with my bare hands. 
The next day, my hands were swollen and they were itchy. I had poison ivy all over my fingers, in between my fingers, on my palms, around my wrists, going up my arms. Has anybody ever had poison ivy? Yeah, it's horrible. It's really awful. It's not just that it itches, but like boils, as it were, form on your skin and they break and they ooze this pus. And the technical term for this is weeping. Like, your skin is crying. (laughs) Tears of poison, which then spread to the rest of your body and and spread uh, poison ivy to everywhere it touches. Well, to keep this poison ivy from spreading any further, I decided to cover it up. I put a Band-Aid on it. And this turned out to be the very worst thing that you could possibly do. Because it trapped the poison in. By not letting the poison out, I kept the poison in and I got blood poisoning. And that meant me having to get a steroid shot in the butt with a super long needle while my grandmother watched. And that meant me crying because she was there and I felt that the needle hit my bone. Talk about being naked and ashamed, right? Like, (laughs) it was awful. But look, like poison ivy, okay, like poison ivy, (laughs) we've got this thing called shame. But we all have this thing called shame inside of us. It's icky. It's toxic. We weep. We try to cover it up. We we try to put band-aids on top of it. Adam and Eve felt naked and ashamed, and they covered up with fig leaves. And nobody walked in tonight wearing fig leaf clothing, and it's probably a good idea. <laughs> They're hard to cover up with, and they shrivel when dry. But just because you aren't hiding behind fig leaves doesn't mean you aren't hiding. Your hiding is just a little bit more sophisticated. Here are some of the ways that you hide your shame. We could call them band-aids that you use to cover it up. The first band-aid is perfectionism. The first band-aid is perfectionism. Perfectionism is a way of trying to prove to yourself and others that you are enough. Good enough, smart enough, thin enough, athletic enough, etc. Perfectionism is not a way of fixing your shame. It's a form of it. It's a form of shame. Brene Brown says this, Perfectionism is the belief that if we do things perfectly and look perfect... We can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. Perfectionism is a 20-ton shield that we lug around thinking it will protect us, when in fact it's the very thing that's preventing us from being seen. Perfectionism is addictive because when we invariably do experience shame, judgment, and blame, we often believe it's because we weren't perfect enough. Rather than questioning the faulty logic of perfectionism, we become even more entrenched in our quest to look and to do everything just right. And that's when it doesn't work. But hear this, even when perfectionism seems to have worked, you finally got praised, you finally got promoted, even then, even then, you are haunted by the thought They don't really like me. They only like the mask that I'm wearing. 
They like the mask, not the person behind it. Perfectionism does not work. It will not cure you of your shame. It only keeps the poison in. A second band-aid you use to cover, hide, or mask your shame is numbing. You try to dull the pain of your shame, and you try to hide it using things like drugs and alcohol. Let's say you go out to the bars, or you go out to a house party on Isham, one block over from my house. All right. and let's say you get wasted. Sure, you're out there connecting with people, but you're not really connecting. You're out there, but you're not all there. The same goes with marijuana. You smoke up. You get high. You have this amazing conversation with your roommates last night. But it wasn't that amazing. Because here's what happens next. You wake up the next morning, and they're like, what did we talk about last night? I forget. And you forgot too. Weed is like a smoke screen. It's hard to see people through it, and it's hard for them to see the real you. A third band-aid is not avoiding intimacy, but faking it. You fake it. You imagine or pretend to be more intimate with people than you actually are. Look, you fake intimacy. You fake intimacy every time that you take your clothes off and you hook up with somebody. You're faking intimacy. True intimacy is not just bearing your body. It's about bearing your soul. That's what true intimacy is. When you hook up with somebody, especially somebody you just met that night, bodies are engaged, but souls are disconnected. To quote uh, Lauren Winter, who wrote an excellent book called Real Sex, hooking up is a distorted imitation of sex. As Walt Disney's Wilderness Lodge Resort is only a simulation of real wilderness. The danger is that when we spend too much time in the simulations, we lose the capacity to distinguish between the ersatz and the real. I'm going to say that one more time. It's really good. When we spend too much time in the simulations, when we practice, as it were, fake intimacy too much, we lose the capacity to distinguish between the ersatz, the fake, and the real. You lose the ability to actually know what true intimacy is. And you think that fake intimacy, false intimacy, is the best that God wants for you. Bodies matching together, souls never kissing or touching. That's not what God wants for you. The fourth and final band-aid is shaming and blaming others. Instead of actually dealing with our ickiness, we want everybody else to feel icky too. Instead of picking ourselves up, we make everybody else feel small. Oh yeah, well at least I'm not like so-and-so. Oh yeah, well at least I didn't do that. Right? We shame and we blame. We do it, Adam and Eve do it too. Adam says to God, and kind of with some audacity, God, this whole thing is your fault. If you didn't give me this woman, this never would have happened. And Eve doesn't take the point of the blame too. She's like, don't look at me. It's the snake. Right? Needless to say, 
shaming and blaming others will not cure you of your shame. It's only going to spread it. Right? It's only going to spread it and keep the poison in. Look, shame makes us feel unworthy of connection. And these band-aids do not help. In fact, they only make things worse. So is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for us? Is there any way for us to be naked and not ashamed again? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, there is hope. But here's the deal. You can't do this on your own. You can't handle your shame on your own. Yours and my band-aids will not work. Perfectionism will not work. Numbing will not work. Faking it will not work. And pointing the blame someplace else, it won't work. Our band-aids do not work. We need something better than a band-aid. We need something better than a band-aid. We need a balm. We need a balm. A salve for our soul. Something that won't just cover up and hide our shame, but actually take it away. Dry it up. Heal us where we hurt. This is what we need. Not a cover-up, not a band-aid, but a balm. And this is something that only God can provide. Look here with me at Genesis chapter 3 again. Because I want to show you three amazing things from this passage. We saw the first last week. Look, when we go hiding, what does God do? He goes seeking. That's amazing. When we hide, God goes seeking. Secondly, God wages war. He throws down the gauntlet. I'm putting enmity between you and you. I'm waging war against evil. And look, to the snake, someday a child is going to come and he is going to crush your head. He's going to defeat evil once and for all, but he is going to get wounded in the process. Someday a child is going to come who's going to kill you, but get wounded in the process. The rest of the Bible is answering this question. What child is this? Who is this promised one? Kind of cool. So God wages war. But thirdly, look at verse 21. Before Adam and Eve leave the garden, what does God do? God makes clothes for them. God makes clothes for Adam and Eve to wear. Now why would God do that? Adam and Eve were already wearing clothes. Now granted, it wasn't much, right? Some, some fig leaves sewed together. But it was clothes. They had clothes. So if they had it, why does God kill an innocent and then cover them with it? Here's why. Adam and Eve's efforts to cover up their shame and yours and my efforts to cover up our shame will not work. Left to our own devices, left to our band-aids, we will feel naked and ashamed forever. And that is not what God wants. That is not what God intended for his image bearers. 
He did not intend for his image bearers to feel naked and ashamed forever. God wants to take our shame away, but what is that going to take? Well, in order for us to be naked and not ashamed anymore, an innocent one has to die. And we need to be covered with it or with him. Thousands of years later, a man named Jesus walked this earth. And he claimed to be the promised one, the child of Genesis 3.15, the long-awaited one. And when people saw him, they said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the innocent one who's got us covered. On the cross, friends, Jesus bore the guilt that our shame incurred, and he took the punishment that our sins deserve. But he didn't just take away our guilt. He took away our shame. Look, on the cross, Jesus died naked and ashamed outside of a city wall. Naked and ashamed outside a city wall so we would not have to feel naked and ashamed and like outsiders ever again. You were made for intimacy. To, be, to know and to be known. To love and to be loved. This is what you were made for, but you were afraid of it. You're afraid of intimacy. You're afraid of showing your true self because there are things in your past that you are not proud of. There are thoughts and there are feelings that you have that you are afraid to share. What if they reject me? Well, guess what? God sees it all. He sees it all. And he's not running away from you. Arms in the air. Ah! He's running towards you. He's running towards you, not to crush you, but to cover you, to take away your shame. And once you realize that you can bear your soul with God, with the one whose opinion really matters most, once you realize I can be fully seen and fully known and I am fully loved, once you experience that kind of intimacy, It doesn't seem so scary bearing your soul with other people. It gets a little bit easier because you know that you are accepted. Look, Jesus' sacrificial love is the balm that you need. It's what your heart craves. It is better than all of your band-aids put together. His love, His blood, His perfection This is the only cover that will not keep the shame in, but dry it up and heal it where you hurt. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess we are naked and full of shame. We hear that voice inside of our head that says not enough. And we don't know what to do with it. We try to hide it. We try to cover it with band-aids of perfectionism or drugs or alcohol. Hooking up. Pointing the finger at other people. But we also confess that it's not working. We still feel this way. And we confess that we need something better.
I pray that you would take the balm of your sacrificial love and you would apply it to the hearts of everyone here. And I pray we would come back again and again to receive that and to be reminded of what you have done for us decisively in Jesus. I pray that for these students. I pray for myself. And I pray for my family. Lord, I pray for those who aren't here. Would they know this good news too? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.